Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we begin our journey here through 1 Corinthians. Father, thank you for this letter. Thank you for the life of Paul the Apostle. Thank you for the church in Corinth. And thank you for the people gathered here today, serving the same God, desiring the same things as you desired for this church. We desire, God, that, that your name and your renown will be made known through us. And so we just pray that you'd help us as we engage with what can be at times a very difficult text of Scripture. But help us today that you would just make yourself known among us in a powerful way by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this letter that Paul wrote to the church of God in the city of Corinth is 1,967 years old. And as we move through it together over the coming months, uh, it is going to make you think that this letter could have been written to the church of God in the city of Vancouver a month ago. It is that relevant to us. It is that alive to us as we look at it. To get a sense of where this letter is going, what we need to do is get a sense of where it's come from. And so I want to show you, because I love Bible maps and I am an unashamed Bible map nerd, I want you to have a look with me. Paul's second missionary journey starts on the right-hand side of the screen in a city called Antioch. And he and his traveling companion named Silas decided that they were going to go off north and visit some of the churches that Paul had planted on his first missionary journey. And so they take off. They actually cross over one mountain range into Tarsus. And now I know that unless you've got your binoculars with you, you might not be able to see the names of the towns. But you can see the arrows at least. They go to Tarsus, where Paul was from, and they eventually go to Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, all, all places that Paul had been at and planted churches in earlier on in his life. And then they, wanting to go north and even to the east a little bit, they thought this is where we should go. The Holy Spirit actually forbid them to do so and directed them a different way. They ended up going west, as you can see by that arrow across the top, to a place called Troas, and from Troas to Samothrace, and then over to Neapolis. Now they have crossed into the continent of Europe. I told you, I'm an unashamed Bible map nerd. They're now into what is modern-day Greece. Paul goes to the, church, uh, to, to the city of Philippi, plants a church in Philippi. He continues on in the journey, and eventually he makes his way to Thessalonica. We know that they planted a church in Thessalonica. He then goes down to Berea. From Berea, he ends up making his way to Athens. From Athens, 
where he goes and preaches to the Areopagus, or what's called Mars Hill, the leading philosophers and thinkers and leaders of the day, he eventually travels west, and he ends up in the city of Corinth. Now, to try and get some scope of this, because I know sometimes looking at ancient maps can be a bit confusing if you've not been there and walked on that territory. If you were in a car and you were going to go from Philippi to Thessalonica, it would take you about an hour to drive. And rather than sailing from the north to the south to Athens, if you were going to drive from Thessalonica and you were going to make your way down to Athens, that's five or six hours by car. And if you were in Athens and you decided you wanted to go and take a trip to the west in Corinth, it would take you about an hour to get there. It's not that far. Now, of course, we're probably not going to walk it. This is the journey that Paul was on. You can find all of that in Acts chapters 15 through 18. I want to read to you, though, just out of Acts chapter 18, the first 11 verses, just to tell you what happens, because Paul was in Athens. It says then in verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. This is how we arrive in the city where this letter has been addressed. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, which would have been awkward. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So I just want to show you what happens. He goes from Athens to Corinth. He bumps into some people, probably at the synagogue, who are the same trade as he is. He gets to know them a little bit. He becomes friends with them. They're sharing the word together. He's preaching in the Jewish synagogue because that's what Paul always did when he arrived in a new town. And they eventually kick him out. And he says, you know what? Then that's fine. It's on your head if you don't believe this. And he probably, just in my mind, and just come with me for a second on this, he he makes a bit of a spectacle about leaving because it sounds like he made a bit of a spectacle about leaving because they were making a bit of a spectacle about the fact that he was preaching Jesus. And then he went next door. to the home of Titus Justice, where now they were going to gather as the church. One of the guys who came with them was the leader of the synagogue. Paul's made an impression early on in his time in Corinth. He arrived in Corinth in either the year 51 or 52 AD, which we can figure out by who was ruling in what territory at that time. And he stayed there for at least another 18 months, or or he stayed there for another 18 months, which means he was there between 18 and 24 months, probably in total, preaching the word of God to the church in Corinth, working as a tent maker in the city. The letter that he's writing, the letter that we're going to be working through in the coming months, would have been about three years after that. So the letter came in about 54 or 55 AD meaning it's about 20-some years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Just trying to give you a background idea of where this is all coming from. 
and, and so was the foundation of the church in Corinth. Now, here's what Acts 18 cannot tell you. What Acts 18 cannot and does not tell you is that Corinth was a crazy place to live and a crazy place to do ministry. The scholars say that Corinth seems to have been a city that was designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. They idolized the idea of making it. The social climate of Corinth meant people formed their identity around occupational and material success, income, wealth, prestige, education, knowledge, your place in your family or your ethnic group, your local community status. These were all things that the Corinthians thought a lot about. If you were looking to climb the social status ladder in the Roman Empire, but maybe you weren't going to be able to make it in Rome... Corinth might have been the place for you. Maybe in Rome, all the social stratification was already established and you were having a hard time ascending that ladder. Maybe because of all the old money in Rome, your business was not booming. Well, Corinth is the upstart place you're looking for. You want to make it? You want to achieve? You have aspirations? Corinth is home for you. It was also a really religious city in the sense that it was full of temples and idols. Worship of all different kinds. If you can imagine this with me, there was a hill that rises about 600 meters up from the coastline in Corinth. And at the top of that hill, which dominated the cityscape, there was a large temple to Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love. The temple of Aphrodite had priestesses who were sacred prostitutes who at night would come down from the hill into the city to work their trade. The temple, uh, well, be, because it was a seaport, and you've got to think about this, geographically, if you, I mean, I, I could do an hour on the map, okay? I just need you to understand this. It's very painful for me to skip all these details. But if you, if, you, if you want to later, you pull it up on Google Maps and you can see that there's a canal that goes through there. It's a very narrow place and there's two ports. There's one on either side. And that canal wasn't there at the time of Paul's writing. There was two ports. And, and being a port city, there were a lot of things that came with that. One was that they had a temple to the god of navigation. Um, again, being a very religious city, they also had a temple to the god Apollo, the god of music and song and poetry. See, Apollo was also the standard of male beauty, which is important because within that world, in the worship life of that world, that meant Corinth was the center of, of homosexuality in some ways as well. So you've got prostitution attached to temples and the worship cycle of what's going on in, in the place. It's a port city, which means a lot of people come and go, and they have a little less accountability because they're not from there. That means that it's a really good place to go and settle. It also was a place not just for business and not just for religion, but also philosophy. Um, Miriam, who you just saw up here dedicating her children with her husband Val, is one of my professors. And she talks about how uh, Corinth was like the upstart philosophical center. Athens, an hour, as I showed you on the map to the east, was like the old university town where it was kind of like that was the old game, but the new game on philosophy was in Corinth. If you wanted to have a place where you could come and lecture and share your ideas and banter about with other philosophers and try and do some teaching, that's going to be a place for you. Again, a desire to make it, a desire to achieve status. They were a huge sporting community. 
They had a huge sporting event every two years that was really second only to the Olympics itself. It was a big deal, and it really marked out and defined aspects of the city uh, who then became, and it was just sort of infused with competition. The idea of competition and achieving, again, is here. So hear, hear me, this is what I want to say. Corinth was about climbing the ladder of social status, gaining wealth, becoming famous, patting your resume. It was a religious city full of all kinds of idolatry and all manner of philosophical ideas. It was known for blatant sexual immorality, and it was bent toward an arrogant competition in all of those areas that created a me-first mentality in the citizens of the city. Some of you are smirking because I told you this letter could have been written to the Church of God in the city of Vancouver a month ago. Two scholars said Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic, accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Sound familiar? Prosperous? Check. Cosmopolitan, meaning that it had people from all over the world? Check. Religiously pluralistic, meaning there are all kinds of world religions and unique spiritualities all around you in the city? Yeah, we've got that. Check. Accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers? We literally host the TED Talks. Thinkers and professors and teachers from all over the place want to make a stop in Vancouver, whether it's at UBC or downtown in a big theater, wherever it is. We seem to attract them here. Obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Okay, It's so obvious I feel a little bit embarrassed even saying it out loud, but check. See, all of the Bible is relevant to all of our life. But 1 Corinthians, like we need this book now in our city, in our world, in our church, in our homes, in our lives. For a sense of comparison, if you want to try and get your minds around the problems that the church is, we're going to see that they're going through in Corinth, um, I, I just want you to think about the fact that the Corinthian church was likely smaller than Christ City, and the city of Corinth was smaller than Vancouver. So think of a church of 100 or 200 in a city of you know, 50 to 100,000. There's wild estimates in both directions on the size of the city, but it seems to be that historians think it was around that size. So just you can imagine that. Okay, let's look at the text. That's all background. And again, thank you very much. Just allowing me. Very excited about the background. Verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay. The first nine verses of this lengthy letter are really important to us because they set the tone and they reveal the heart of Paul the Apostle for the church who everybody knew was pretty messed up. We catch his heart in these first nine verses. Now, if we were just to look at the text that I've just read to you, we'd think things are probably going pretty well in this church, wouldn't we? If you've never read Corinthians before, and I know that many of you may not have, you would think, well, what's with all the problems and all the crazy things you've already said about the city and how that's reflected in the life of the church community? Because this sounds pretty rosy to me, Brett. Okay. In truth, it's actually the opposite. If the first nine verses of chapter one are not in this text, you'd wonder if Paul liked them at all. David Pryor said in the first nine verses, of, if the first nine verses of this letter were excised, were cut out, removed from the text, it would be impossible for any reader to come to anything but a fairly pessimistic view of the church at Corinth. But that's not how Paul addresses them. I just want you to see it. That's not how he addresses them. He loves them. He's definitely gearing up for a bit of a rebuke. But he is going to rebuke them as a father in the faith rebukes those who he loves. He loves his spiritual sons and daughters. The introduction to this letter gets at, I mean, at least three problems that he needs to confront in the life of the Corinthian church. And, and the way that the things I'm about to show you, the three problems I'm going to identify and then we're going to talk about for a minute, the way that you see those is when you read the whole book from front to back and you kind of see the entire letter in its, in, its, in its vision of what Paul's trying to accomplish and the things that he keeps repeatedly having to address, what happens is if you read it like that and then you take all of that knowledge and squish it back into the first nine verses, you see that Paul's actually done something remarkable with his little kind, you know, gracious, generous introduction. So all I want to do is just flag three problems and I want to show you how each of those problems are manifested in the life of the church and then I want to show you what the answer to each problem looks like according to the text. That's all we're going to do. The rest of the time that we have, we're going to identify three problems. We're going to look at how those problems are manifested in the life of the church and then how Paul addresses it or gives some kind of resolution or solution to the problems that he is here identifying. Here are the three problems that I want us to note. The first is individualism. Individualism, which leads to self-centeredness, disunity, and division. First is individualism. The second is arrogance which really led them to have a higher estimation of their spirituality than they should have. They were a very arrogant community, and you're going to see it all the way through the letter. Paul's going to confront their arrogance, their pride. And third, we're going to look at something called syncretism. 
syncretism. It's their idolatry and their unholiness and their sin and the debauchery of all kinds that comes out of syncretism. We're going to talk about what that is. If that's a new word for you, that's no problem. We're going to get into what it is. So the three problems that I've identified in the introduction that I want to lay out a bit of a picture for are just looking at individualism, arrogance, and syncretism. Okay. Individualism. Let me quote Stephen Um. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrounding, or surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognizes no superior and no law but his own desires. Their individualist perspective, the way that they look at everything that's going on. It was destroying the community itself because what happened is people had imported this worldly Corinthian way of thinking into the context of the community of their church. And because of that, they've now got a bunch of really pronounced divisions cutting the community apart. They preferred themselves. They were taking the self-centeredness that was celebrated in their culture and they were projecting that onto the way they followed Jesus. Let me say it again. They took the self-centeredness that was celebrated in the culture of their city and they projected that upon the way that they followed Jesus. It's seen in all the factions of the church. It's seen in the way that they were suing one another, taking each other to court. The sexual immorality within the community that we're going to see later on in chapters 5 and 6 and and onward. The way they didn't consider the conscience of the other people around them. They only preferred themselves. The way the rich were treating the poor. The way they only cared about their own spiritual gifts. These are the problems of individualism manifested in the life of the church. And what does Paul do? Shows them a better way. Look at the text, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Just stop there. Nowhere else, when he's addressing a letter to a church, does he start it like this. To the church of God that is in Corinth. He's emphasizing the universality of the church before he addresses them narrowly as a local church. This is what you have to do when you have somebody who thinks they're the best, the brightest, the smartest, the greatest, but actually they're falling apart. When they think we are really the leading church of God in the world. Um, I heard a story about a preacher one time who he had preached this huge event in the States. This big, big event. Tens of thousands of people who had arrived there. And he was in the car on his way home with his wife. And he said to his wife, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in America today? And his wife said, one less than you think. Okay, how many of you know we can take on an identity like that as a church? We can. We can take on a corporate identity like that. We can think, man, our church really has it together. I love our church. But the Corinthians loved their church in a way that Paul needed to reorient. They thought very highly of themselves. He's showing them a better way here in the text by reorienting their perspective. Just look at verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth... The church of God's what matters. It happens to be in Corinth, not the Corinthian church. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place, not just in Corinth, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, not just our Lord and nobody else's. 
He's making a point here. Again, a better way that they can conceive of who they are as a church, he reorients their perspective. He's helping them reimagine what it means to be the church of God in Corinth in a way that they are not the center of the story. He is working to transform their imagination of how they conceive themselves as God's people. All right. Rather than a me-first, rugged individualism, Paul is going to preach to them a vision of Christ who was crucified in their place where our Lord of glory laid his life down for the benefit of the other. And he's reminding them that they are not the only church in the world. Again, it's so important. It's so important he's going to preach to them the cross of Christ in chapters 1 and 2. And he's going to preach to them the resurrection in chapter 15. And in chapters, really, 4 through 11... He's going to deal with all the junk that's going on in their church. But not until he has bookended all of the ethical teaching about all the junk that's going on in their church with the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the answer to all the ethical problems that they're dealing with in their community. Okay? He's not going to combat their individualism with a long list of rules. He's going to combat their individualism with a compelling vision of the crucified and risen Jesus. Klein Snodgrass said, Rules never motivate ethical behavior. Awareness of God does. See, if if I was writing the letter to the Corinthians, it would not be as kind as Paul. It'd be shorter. It'd be less kind. Because I probably would have missed the fact that what they don't need is just a bunch of rules. See, if any of us were to sit down, we would say, well, if you're doing all these things, Paul, just make a list of rules for them that will get them to where they need to go. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. What I need them to do is have an awareness of God. Because when you have a healthy, strong awareness of God, all the ethical stuff starts to fall into place. It's so vital. He wants them to see Jesus. The Corinthians thought it was all about them, and and I know that we struggle with some of this individualism too, but I just want you to notice how Paul starts this letter, okay? Again, we've gone through nine verses. Verse 1, Jesus. Verse 2, Jesus, twice. Verse 3, Paul talks about Jesus. Verse 4, Paul talks about Jesus. Verse 5, he talks about uh, how we are enriched in him. Doesn't name him, but how we are enriched in him. Verse 6, Jesus. Verse 7, Jesus. Verse 8, Jesus. And verse 9, Jesus. That, if I'm doing my math right, is nine Jesus in nine verses, plus one reference to how we're enriched, not in our own self and strength, but in him. Christ City, who's the book about? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. If he's not the center of the story, I don't know what the story is. The individualism that was going on there led to a self-centeredness, a disunity, and a division that was ripping the church apart. See, the way forward, the answer to the problem of individualism here in the text is seeing the humble Christ high and lifted up and knowing that he came to not serve himself, but not serve his needs, but to come and serve the ultimate needs of his people. Paul's going to deconstruct their individualism as the letter goes along. 
Second problem I see in here is arrogance. What do I mean by this? Throughout the letter, it's going to be very obvious that Paul is trying to take them down a peg in a certain sense in a few pronounced areas. He wants them to reimagine what it is to not chase the gift as much as the gift giver. Some things that the Corinthians think they are really, really good at, and Paul wants to rightly order the way that they think about that. He, he, he wants to help them understand it. See, it's the way they speak. They were big on the giftedness of communication in public. He wants to talk about the way they speak. He wants to talk about their knowledge and their wisdom. And he also wants to talk about their spiritual gifts. See, they were really arrogant about the power of their speech, the power of their knowledge, and the power of the gifts of the Spirit that they had. And what does Paul do? Again, a little counterintuitive for me, probably not what I would have done, probably because he's a better pastor than me. Verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. The three things that they were most arrogant about, Paul thanks God for. And you go, huh? I thought it was a problem, Paul. Listen, did you watch any judo in the Olympics? I love watching that stuff that you never get to see on TV. Right? If you do judo, you're my hero. I love judo. Here's the judo move that Paul's using here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Okay? You use your opponent's momentum against them when you take your opponent and flip them on their head. That's a judo throw. Paul, wrestling with the Corinthians, knowing who they are, are coming at him because they're individualistic, arrogant people who are looking to make it in the world. He grabs a hold of them, sticks his leg out, and throws them down on the ground in an effort to reveal to them what's actually going on. The things that they're arrogant about, Paul stops and thanks God for. Why? Why? He's trying to help them see that arrogantly boasting about the gifts they have received is a backwards way to think. He could have easily condemned them for turning the gifts of God into tools on their quest to gain a higher status in the community, but he does not do that. At least he does not do that quite yet. Paul knows that these gifts have come from God and he gives thanks for them because he knows they are not bad things. He knows they are good things gone bad. These gifts are amazing. The problem is not in the very gifts that they are excited about. The problem is their attitude towards them. They have received a gift and then they have boasted and said, look how awesome I am. And Paul's like, you know what? Let's just thank God for those gifts. And maybe recognize that you did not make the gifts of the Spirit come out of you in your own strength, but that you received them from God who loves you. He's showing them a better way by reorienting their perspective. He's helping them reimagine what it means to be gifted by the Spirit, but how they need to then live that out in humble thankfulness to the gift giver instead of arrogant boasting as the gift receiver. Do you see it? You need to hang on to that because he's going to go there in the letter. And at times it feels abrupt because they're arrogant. It's arrogance that led them to having a higher estimation of their spirituality than they should have. And that higher estimation of their spirituality was robbing God of his glory. 
They need to reimagine the gifts not as status markers to show that you're climbing the ladder and rank of status in the community, but those gifts are actually so that you can humble yourself and serve one another. It's a totally different vision of the gifts, and Paul's just trying to flip it on, flip it on its head. He wants them to understand why they've been gifted in the way they have. Third problem, syncretism. Okay, syncretism is what happens when you try and blend together different religious worldviews and, and you try and curate for yourself a new spirituality. We see this in Vancouver all the time. In fact, I think it's the predominant spirituality in the city of Vancouver. I got a little Buddhism. I got a little Hinduism. I got a little, uh, I got a little Christianity because Jesus, he seemed like a cool guy and he's historical, so we have to take him seriously. But I also have a little bit of Allah and I've got a little bit of New Age spirituality and I like Eckhart Tolle and Oprah Winfrey. Oh, Oprah! Okay, that's Vancouver spirituality. Okay, Vancouver spirituality says, I like to go out into the forest and commune with God. And I'm like, I like to go out in the forest and commune with God too. Who do you mean when you say God? Because I'm not talking to the trees. This is the world that we live in. It's syncretistic. It's the blending together of a lot of different religious and philosophical worldviews to create your own boutique designer spirituality. All right, it was a problem in Corinth too. Huge problem in Corinth. I have no idea where I'm at in my notes. <laughs> Next page. It is as if the boundaries between the church and the world. This is a quote from Andrew Wilson. It is as if the boundaries between the church and the world had almost disappeared. Some New Testament churches struggled with opposition and persecution from the cities around them. The Corinthians faced the opposite problem, assimilation into a pagan, promiscuous, competitive, and idolatrous culture. Much of Paul's effort in writing this letter, whether it relates to leadership, sexuality, the nature of the church, idol food, corporate worship, or the resurrection, aims to reestablish the difference between the church and the city, between Christianity and idolatry. That is one of the many reasons why it is such a helpful text for those of us who live in the post-Christian West. That's where we live. And there's another quote. Miriam gave me this one this week, gave it to our team this week when she was teaching us a little bit about Corinthians. She said that uh, Lyle Vanderbrook said, the Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. Yeah. That's the right response to that one. Let me read it again because it just feels good. The Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. I would like to live like the rest of the city of Vancouver, but I would also like to call myself a Christian. What I'm looking for is actually syncretism. I'm looking to continue living like the city without any social or theological interruptions. All Paul's trying to do here is to convince them that they should live lives that line up with the truth of who they are in Christ, as opposed to lives that line up with the city and the value structure around them. Their syncretism was leading to idol worship, and that's literally the worship of other gods. It was leading to the use of prostitutes, which again was part of the culture of their sex-obsessed city, but it was also part of the religious worship of their city. It was leading to the power struggle over status. 
because that's how worship in ancient Corinth worked. Okay? Syncretism led to unholiness and sin and debauchery of all kinds. Okay? And what does Paul do with the way that they're living? Okay? Honestly, if Paul was just walking through the streets of Corinth and he was going and preaching and teaching and, and sharing in the meals at the different homes of the Church of the Corinthians, if he was just going around and hanging out with them, but he had a documentary film crew, like it would do really well on Netflix. That's what I think. I think it's a wild city. I think it's a wild church. I actually don't think it's that different than where we live. What's Paul do? Two things here. He reminds them of who they already are in Christ. He reminds them of the truth of God's faithfulness. This is so huge. Look at verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who are in every place called upon the name of the Lord of our, uh, sorry, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? They're sanctified in Christ Jesus, and they are called to be saints together with all the other Christians. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and those called to be saints. He reminds them that they are to progressively pursue becoming who they already are in Christ. That's what his response to the debauchery around them actually looks like. He's just going to continue reminding them who they already are in Christ. If you read chapters 4 through 11 in this letter, you're going to think to yourself, that is not a sanctified saintly church. That's what you're going to think. You're going to look at it and go, this is a mess. And that's why Paul has to front end this truth. He's got to get it in there before he starts addressing all of the actual issues. He says they are made holy and they are already called holy. They are already made holy and already called holy. So what he's going to compel them to do is to continue to become who they already are. Their identity is not in their failings. Yes, they need to repent of their sin, 100%. Yes, they need to address the fractures in the community, 100%. But Paul knows that staring at your sin and meditating on your sin and thinking about your sin is not going to produce holiness in your life any more than if you were just sitting there staring at a potato, it's going to turn you into a vegetable. Okay? If you want to become holy... You don't stare at your sin. You look at Jesus. Focusing on your sin cannot make you who you already are. It cannot make you a stronger Christian, like the self-flagellation that we live in of, I'm a horrible sinner. Yeah, probably, but you're also sanctified and called a saint. Let's become who we already are. That's what Paul's saying to the church. He goes, I know you're a mess. You're also sanctified and saints. Focus on Jesus. The way to produce holiness is not to have your eyes on yourself at all. That's the point. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who came to atone for your sin and who rose from the grave in power and glory and new life that he then gives to you. 
Verse 7 says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, again alluding to the resurrection that he's going to talk about in chapter 15, verse 8 says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to stop there for a second and understand that that's already yours if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know this because this is what you can have. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's already yours. I... A saint who continues to sin on the day of judgment am going to be declared guiltless before God. That's true right now. So when Paul's going to go and deal with all the crap in their church, he wants them to know this first. Because if you don't know this, it's very painful to deal with all the brokenness. Doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you say to a group of arrogant, individualistic, syncretistic sinners. It's the exact right thing to say. And Paul the Apostle is a good shepherd. He's pointing them to Jesus. One scholar said, she, she's got a tremendous commentary on this. One should not think of holiness as either ethical perfection or intense religious emotion. Holiness means being dedicated to God. In practical terms, holiness may feel like a high-wire act. On the other hand, Christian holiness remains the work of God who is faithful. On the other hand, believers often fall short of the obligation to express that holiness in their lives. So, the apostle has a responsibility to encourage, instruct, and correct the churches. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul has tremendous confidence, not in the vitality of the church itself. He has tremendous confidence in the faithfulness of God. Verse 9 says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ said, if you leave here today with one thought in your mind from our time together in the word and worship and we're going to celebrate communion if you leave with one thought in your mind it's that god is faithful yes we are sanctified yes we are saints but not because of our individual achievements but because of the achievements of another our status as god's people is not something we are to be arrogant about because it is something that we did not earn see it is something that we've received and if this was good enough for the Corinthians, it is certainly good enough for us because Paul's whole point is that there is nothing exceptionally good or bad about their church. Everything he is telling them about the mess that they are in and the answer of the faithfulness of God, it is just as true for you and me today as it was for them back then. 